We had a kid who was in the first percentile in reading and math. We were talking about what the goals were for the year. And he said, I want to learn to read. I was in third grade. I want to learn to read. I'm sick of not knowing how to read. I'm sick of being made fun of. And we're like, well, you're not going to get made fun of here, but we can definitely teach you how to read. And so him and his parents and, and the microscooter came up with a plan. And like this three months, he went from the first percentile to the 38th percentile in reading. And then over that period, he was in the 99th percentile for rate of growth. And the crazy thing is that his math, we didn't do any remedial work for math. We just did reading. His math scores jumped by almost the exact same amount because it turns out that he just couldn't read a lot of the math problems, but he was actually incredibly strong at math. And so, I mean, none of this stuff is rocket science, but I just think that the, this is goes, comes back to the bureaucracy and the sort of stiffness and, and like the traditional system just really struggles to serve these kids well. And so a lot of the challenge for us is like, can you figure out how to scale that to 100,000 to a million kids? Um, and that's what our team's working on. Welcome back to The Peel, where we explore the world's greatest startup stories. I'm your host, Turner Novak, founder of Banana Cap. Today, I talked to Ryan Delk, co-founder and CEO of Primer, who's turning teachers into superheroes, enabling thousands of teachers across the U.S. to open and run their own schools at half the cost per student of the traditional U.S. K-12 education system. We kick things off talking about that education system. It's a trillion-dollar market, which is six times more than the total enterprise software market, and has impacted everyone listening in one way or another. Yet very few of us understand how it actually works or even talk about it. Luckily, Ryan knows. He taught me about the various levels of policies and incentives that exist at the local, state, and federal levels, and how all those different layers evolved over the last century into a system where teachers spend hours every weekend filling out paperwork, literal actual pieces of paper, in the year of our Lord, 2023. We talk about taking a first principled approach to launching and running a school, building custom software for teachers, and creating personalized learnings for each student to get them to the top 99% of learning growth in the U.S., Within a few weeks, we talk about how school districts often prioritize signaling over outcome, when homeschooling does and doesn't work, why ex-founders make the best employees, and the company he almost started right before Prime. Ryan views education is the ultimate downstream enabler and wants to make high-quality education more accessible for every family across the country. Before we jump in, a quick shout-out to Founders Inc. in San Francisco. They let us use their space for this episode, plus another one that's airing in September. Check them out at f.inc. Thank you, Ryan, for coming on the show. Let's jump in after a short word from SecureFrame. This episode is brought to you by SecureFrame, the automated compliance platform built by security experts. If you listen to the first two episodes of The Peel, you know SecureFrame helps thousands of businesses get and stay compliant with security and privacy frameworks like SOC 2, ISO 2701, HIPAA, PCI, GDPR, and more. It's a robust, beautiful product used by thousands of customers getting them compliant in weeks, not months. What I haven't mentioned yet is its newest feature launched two weeks ago, Comply AI. It works in real time to quickly generate initial security and compliance guidance as code, which speeds up cloud remediation and time to compliance. It's integrated directly into SecureFrame's core product that uses AI and automation to remove all the headaches of getting and staying compliant. Companies like Ramp, AngelList, and Coda trust SecureFrame for all their compliance and security needs, and I highly recommend it to every founder I meet. I'm also an investor. Head to secureframe.com and their in-house team of compliance experts and former auditors will get you set up. Check the show notes or newsletter for a special discount off your first year. Thank you, SecureFrame. And now let's talk to Ryan and Primer. Ryan, how's it going? Thanks for having me. Go well. Yeah, uh, so I gave the quick intro. Why don't we just jump in? Can you talk about the U.S. K-12 education system? Like, how does it work? I think it's interesting because it's one of those things that I think everyone agrees isn't working. 
but we sort of, we're sort of all just like accept that it doesn't work in this like very weird way. Why doesn't um, it work and why do we accept it? So there is like a pretty wide distribution of quality and people's experiences. Like it's a very local, you know, you, when you think about the education system, you think about that most people think about the school that their kid goes to. And there's really great public schools in the U.S. There's good charter schools, there's good private schools. Um, unfortunately, there's a lot of really bad public schools, private schools, charter schools as well. Um, but when you zoom out, it's like we spend a, basically a trillion dollars a year on core K through 12 spending in the U.S. Uh, and for context, that's about six times larger than all the money we spend on every SaaS app company combined. And that's a, a mixture of private spending, federal, state, local, and we can talk about like how, how different you know, schools are funded. So it's this massive, this massive capital outlay every year. And the, the way that that capital has, has been distributed over the last 50 years has changed a lot. And um, one trend, one, one way to think about the trend is that you've, you've gone from um, sort of m most of that capital ending up in um, like teacher, basically going to teachers or directly to the core education experience of the kids into like every other sort of, this is a secular trend across a lot of industries where there's like huge layers of administration and bureaucracy on top of it. You know, if you look at most of these, the way this thing is allocated, you wouldn't look at like this one policy and be like, oh, this is a terrible idea. But I think it's this thing where like, you know, if you're a hammer, everything looks like a nail. If you're a, someone who makes, you know, education policy, it's like you're, the way that you want to solve these problems is by adding more policy. And if you just layer this on top of each other, eventually you get to where we are today. And so we can talk more about incentive structures and stuff too, but yeah, it's just this, I mean, it's, it's this massive capital that happens every year. The results are really not getting better. Um, and for some odd reason, we sort of all just kind of like accept it and collectively agree to not spend that much time or energy trying to fix it in any sort of like radical way. Um, we sort of hope for these like incremental improvements. So when you say federal, state, local funding, does certain layers of funding like go to certain things? So like, does the federal funding fund a certain aspect, the state fund a certain, local funds a certain, like how does that all stack on top of each other and interconnect? Yeah, so it's different uh, in every state based on which states have income tax, uh, local jurisdictions, property taxes, et cetera. But the basic way to think about it is that about 45% of uh, like a public school, 45% of their budget uh, or school districts comes from state spending. 45% comes from local, the local budget. And so this is things like sales tax, property tax, income tax, capital, all these different things. And then about 10% uh, comes from the federal budget. Um, and so it's sort of this, this layered of local state federal funding uh, that then comes down to fund the school district uh, and the public and charter schools in those, those districts. And are there certain incentives or priorities that attach to each of those funding sources? Like they want certain things or they kind of guide the schools towards doing things a certain way and they all interconnect? Yeah. So... This is one of the, I think it's like a counterintuitive or, or at least challenging sort of structural problem, which is that intuitively you want to give schools that are underperforming and generating bad student outcomes, you want to give them more resources to generate better student outcomes. But if you do that for a long enough time, you get to a situation where the, the schools that are giving, generating bad student outcomes sort of, you know, keep getting more and more funding and oftentimes aren't generating better student outcomes. And so there's all these schools that you can look at where they keep getting more and more funding, student outcomes are basically the same. There's, uh, in, in my experience, I often hear stories of corruption and all these things that are happening. And it's like one of those things that from first principles, it sort of makes sense. Like, oh, we should give these, you know, these schools more resources. But you end up in a situation where there, I think there's a, a, a pretty ra sort of radically misallocation of resources. And I think that's the, that's the thing that uh, has started to compound a lot of the problems that are happening now in the system. When you're saying they, they compound and get to some of the problems we have today, I think there's an interesting stat, like 42% of adults are satisfied with the K-12 education yeah. system what are we happy about? What are we not satisfied with? One of the things that, that I've learned and that we've learned at Primer is that 
parents' experience of their kids' school, especially, this is, it's probably, if, if you sort of plotted this trend, it would be most true in kindergarten and least true like in 12th grade. But their experience of their school is basically their teacher. If you have a really great teacher, especially like in kindergarten, if your kid is a great kindergarten teacher, even if you're at a terrible school, you're going to think very highly of your kid's education experience. That becomes less true in 12th grade if your you know, daughter happens to have a really great chemistry teacher or calculus teacher or whatever. Uh, maybe you're like, you know, you think that class is amazing, but it probably doesn't impact your entire view of their education. And so I think that for a lot of families, that sort of teacher-driven sentiment is really true early on. Uh, maybe they get lucky, maybe they find a great school with a great teacher and they proactively seek it out, so it's not luck. Uh, but they end up in a great situation and then oftentimes they become more and more jaded over time when they either weren't able to replicate that um, or they have to move schools or whatever. Um, and so I think very few people, very very few adults, and this is where you get to the 42% out, is like, raise kids in America and are sort of contiguously very happy with their kids' education experience from K through 12, which is why you get this huge rise in alternative education, homeschooling, micro-schooling, all these different things happen. Yep, which is exactly what you guys are working on, which we'll, we'll, we'll start to kind of get into a little bit. You know, I also wanted to say, I think teachers are like incredible, like the stuff that they do, they're kind of on the front lines of training. Yep. They're, they're underappreciated, under-resourced a lot of times. Like it's actually pretty incredible what teachers go yep. through. Yeah, my um my view on that is so our our sort of the entire structure of primer is built on this idea that teachers are like superheroes and mm -hmm. the best teachers have the potential to change a child's life, change hundreds of children's life over time of their career. And one of the things interesting about the school system, actually, I I have this like pipe dream at some point of like figure out a way to fund like a study that would test this by putting millions of dollars into a school district. But I think that the incentive structure is totally flipped in schools. And so the reality is the way that the unions and different you know contracts are negotiated. Most teachers, they're structurally incentivized to minimize downside, not maximize upside. So how that means in practical terms is that there's very little upside as a teacher. There's not like some crazy bonus program where you're getting all this additional comp if your kids like outperform. What you're worried about is like the percentage of your kids that are going to fail the state test depending on the state that you're in or how they're going to track on their map scores or whatever, you know, the rubric is that the state uses. And teachers have a lot of anxiety about like trying to ensure that like basically it's like how low is the floor going to be and can I raise the floor as much as possible? And luckily, a lot of teachers in the U.S. happen to be very altruistically motivated, thank God. And so they spend a lot of their own time, money, in many cases, literally their own money, uh, energy, helping kids get ahead, helping ambitious kids, like, you know, work on cool projects, all these things. But there is basically no incentive. There's like a teacher of the year award. There's some counties to recognize different teachers. It might be like a $500 bonus. You get a badge, you can put on your LinkedIn profile, whatever. But it's like these things are de minimis relative to the impact they're having on society when they go above and beyond for these students. And teachers basically have no compensation for that. So the idea that I have that I think would be fascinating is, could you test over like a three or four year horizon, basically creating a bonus structure where there's these like, you know, relatively large financial incentives as a percentage of their salary for doing all these things that we know are really beneficial for kids. And for $5 million or $10 million in a school district, which might be a very small percentage of that budget, depending on the school district, could you actually like dramatically change student outcomes by doing nothing but adding financial incentive. I don't know if it'd work or not, but hmm. I do think the incentive structure is like the Charlie Munger thing, like show me the incentives, I'll show you the outcome. It's like the incentive structure in so many school districts in the U.S. is just completely flipped in my opinion. Is there some sort of a time horizon mismatch where it, like, let's say you you change the incentives, like there there's upside for, you know, assisting a child. And you know, I'm just taking this example because they're, they're in the news, like Elon Musk, you're like Elon Musk teacher, he only succeeds because of you. It, it would have taken 40 years to figure out that the teacher like actually had an impact. Like, is, is that part of it? Yeah, it's, I think it is part of that, but you can, you can get all these leading indicators early and you can find a kid who was super demotivated that a teacher really invested in and six months later is all of a sudden really motivated or a kid that's really struggling with reading and a teacher helps them find this unlock and all of a sudden he's really excited. There's all these things that you can do 
sort of that teachers are able to do, and they do this all the time with interventions that change the trajectory of kids' sort of academic career, whatever you want to call it. And so, yes, I do think like oftentimes you don't see the fruits of your labor for a long time, but you can see it pretty quickly. And like I said, we're just lucky that I think most teachers actually like are really motivated by that, even though there's like basically no financial you know incentive for them to do that. Yeah. So, how do you think we could incentivize teachers? Any ideas? I mean, my idea is to run that study in a school district and see what happens. I think yeah. if you, I mean, and it's you're talking about a, a relatively small amount of capital for the impact you could have on you know tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of kids. Um, I also think teachers. One of the big challenges outside of financial sort of incentive structure is that there's a sort of implicit bureaucratic incentive structure within most of these school districts and institutions where their teachers spend so much time navigating that bureaucracy that they are they're incentivized with their time to just do things that sort of line up with whatever the bureaucratic process is instead of trying to do things that are innovative or different or exciting. And so not only is it a financial thing, but it's also this sort of time structure thing. I talked to a, um, a teacher that's been teaching special ed for you know, 12 years and he's about to quit because he said, I spend every single Saturday now just filling out paper for various different things that I need to be able to you know, report to the state or the district or my principal, or whatever. And I don't get paid for that. I'm just spending my, half my weekend every single week for the entire year filling out all this paperwork. Um, Is it literally pieces of paper? Yeah, yeah. And he's like, I'm sick of it. Like, I'm, I'm not doing this anymore. Like, I'm going to go do, be a private tutor or go make more money doing something else because I'm sick of doing this. Like, and you know, that's a perfect example of that sort of stacking thing I talked about where like, I'm sure that like every person that passed the law that required him to fill out that next piece of paper was well-meaning and that on the face that looks good. But when you thought about the 96 other things that he has to do every Saturday now, it's like, clearly this is insane. And no one's actually stepped back and sort of realized that we're sort of like boiling the frog, I think. So are, are you doing that? Or I guess better question, what, what are you working on? Like, what are you guys building? The bed at Primer is basically teachers are superheroes. If you sort of empower them to become entrepreneurs and launch their own schools, um, amazing things happen and, and specifically empower them to launch schools in their own communities. So you take a teacher that knows a neighborhood really well, knows a group of kids really well, knows families really well, and you empower him or her to and you sort of handle all the complexity for them at the Department of Education level, the local level, the federal level, all these things. And you basically make it super simple for them to launch a school and you help them recruit students. You give them technology that allows them to run a school. So the school runs in this like sort of world-class way. The education is world-class. The parent communication is world-class. And when you do that, the student outcomes are amazing because the, the students are with a teacher that they connect with, that they love, that knows them really well. The teacher has an aide that is able to support them. So you, you have way more support than the average sort of like third grade class. And they, the teachers make way more money. And so they end up, you know, making more money. They're more excited about their work. And you end up with, with what we believe are, are pretty, pretty astounding outcomes, even in neighborhoods or districts that are typically have educational outcomes that are like way below the mean in a state. We, we've still seen some, some, some pretty incredible data in terms of student progress. Um, and we think that at the micro schools are sort of like the structural innovation that makes that happen. So how, how do you start a school? Like, I, how, how does that whole process work? So it depends on where you live. If you're doing it on your own in a lot of places, it would be basically impossible. Without, you know, let's say maybe if you had a $200,000 budget for like lobbyists and, you know, lawyers, maybe you could do it. Mm-hmm. Um, but it'd be basically impossible. There's sort of like three levels to it. So one is there's a state process for starting a private school in most states, in every state. And that process is varying degrees of either impossible or difficult. It's, you know, various sort of steps of paperwork and registration and making sure you're, you have the right credentials to be able to launch the school. And then uh, once you get that done at the state level, which is already fairly difficult, then you have to go to the local level and you have to actually, actually get the school live. And so you have to find a building where you can actually operate a school. You have to go to the local zoning board and say, hey, I'm going to operate a school here. Um, in some jurisdictions, they're going to say, great, where are you going to park the school bus? And you say, oh, well, I have 12 kids. And they say, we don't care. It's a school. You need school parking. You need school bus parking. 
and you get in a you know six month debate with them about why you don't need school bus parking, and then finally you give up and find another location that has school bus parking, even though you only have twelve kids. And so it makes you want to bang your head against the wall. But we take on all that complexity for them. We sort of go to war on their behalf to make it really easy for them to do that. So, so how do you do that? Because it sounds very difficult. I guess it's you you have a team, a couple of people at Primer. Yep. Instead of just doing the teacher, that's also trying to re- recruit the kids, teach the kids, all the admin, legal. What all do you shift off their plate? Yeah. So. Um, Without like, you know, giving away the whole playbook, we, we basically take on everything at the state level for them so that the teachers can, can essentially fill out one form at the beginning of the year with all their information. And this is not paper. This is electronic. Yeah, exactly. Okay. And then basically for the rest of the year, we're able to handle almost everything on their behalf. And so essentially what you're doing is you're, you're, you're registering the school with the state and saying, hey, I'm, I'm going to operate a new private school. This is the name of the school. Um, here's the students that are going to attend. You then prove that whoever's leading that school is credentialed within the state based on whatever the state you know, laws are to lead that school and can lead the school. And then uh, on an ongoing basis, you're saying, hey, here's the students that are attending the school. Here's how we're measuring academic outcomes. Uh, here's how many days they attended. They satisfied the requirements in Arizona or Florida or Texas or wherever. And you're reporting all that to the, the DOE in very specific formats uh, and, and making sure that, you know, <laughs> if they file it wrong, you're following up and making sure it's filed correctly. And then on the local level, that's is actually more complicated you're sort of ensuring that you're in compliance with all the local zoning laws to make sure that at whatever that city or, or county or town uh, has decided is the law for operating a school, you're in compliance with. And so that's everything from like fire, health inspections, um, it could be traffic studies, uh, and there's various frequencies with which these things have to be renewed or reinspected. And so um, there's a ton of nitty gritty that actually it turns out you can productize a lot of this, but you know, the average teacher, it's like so much for them to try to figure out. Yeah, listening to you describe that in the broader tech community, there's this whole like, solopreneur, you know, an individual can start a company. Yeah. This sounds more like starting a corporation or like an institution. This is not a small business, or at least this is not something that someone can take on by themselves, it seems like. Yeah. I mean, this you, if you think about it, that all these laws and regulations were created when a school meant, you know, a, a building with 900 students in it that was going to yep. be constructed for four years and then had a ribbon cutting ceremony with the mayor. And so this idea of an individual teacher launching a school for 15 or 30 or 40 kids in their neighborhood is like, you know, totally breaks the system. And so a lot of what we're doing, honestly, is we're just uh, building a system that allows the, the system to work uh, and sort of be legible to someone who's just trying to do it on a small scale and doesn't actually need all this crazy stuff that the system requires. Hmm. So when you when you say homeschooling, I would think launching a school from their home, is that often what happens? Or are you are some, some of your teachers actually like having a building that people go to? Like, we actually, all of them are in, uh, in buildings. So they're okay. all, the, none of them are in homes right now. Um, they're in churches, community centers, libraries, uh, commercial buildings. We do analysis and essentially find the best uh, locations that, for the teachers, uh, for their schools. And then we work with them to help them find a great location near them. Um, and then part of how we're able to offer the school at, uh, at a really affordable cost to families, or in some case, no out-of-pocket cost, um, is by using existing real estate. So we're not going and building you know, a new school to launch a school or, you know, operating an existing underutilized real estate. What are, what are some of the big narratives related to real estate? It's like, oh, all these commercial buildings are are not filled. People are not renting. People are not going to work anymore. I was talking to someone the other day and they, uh, it was an investor that wasn't investing in private, just having a conversation. He was like, oh, uh, I, I own or co-own a bunch of malls across the U.S. Uh, we should put a primary school in every mall because I need foot traffic. And then we'd have parents coming twice a day to drop off and pick up their kids. So I didn't thought about that. But um, I do think there's like a lot of interesting things, you know, the, the foot traffic component is like a huge asset. And then also just the underutilized component, like every church has, you know, space to underutilized Monday through Friday from eight to four that you can use basically guaranteed. Yeah. Um, community center, same thing. Most of the activities are going to be after school on the weekends. 
Um, library, same thing, most children's programming after school on the weekends. And so there already is this real estate footprint that if you get good at navigating, you know, you're able to kind of help source these locations for teachers and help them source it ultimately. So kind of on this homeschooling thread again, yep. um, typically what I think it, like growing up, I had some friends who did homeschools like at home with their parents, maybe it was online or whatever. And we kind of went through with COVID, it was over Zoom from from your home. Does that work like online school or? In my opinion, like the best possible learning environment for a child is going to be a world-class teacher interacting one-on-one in person with a kid. Like I think that's just far and away the best option. Now, I think that the the interesting part about technology is that it allows you to potentially give kids access to a much higher quality teaching and instruction um, or learning experiences. Uh, and so you start to figure out like what is how much do you discount the fact that it's virtual versus the higher quality than they can get locally. Really what happened in COVID is we took public school uh, or private school and we just changed the medium without changing anything about the structure, the delivery, the schedule. And I mean, there's you know, slight modifications, but not really. We basically just said, okay, instead of this happening in person, we're going to have it happen online. It's going to be the exact same thing, 55 minute, you know, classes, whatever. And obviously that didn't work. And like, you know, every parent has like, you know, insane stories about their kid, you know, their five-year-old trying to like be in Zoom school or something. It's just like, come on, this is, there's just no way this is going to work. And so my, my view on it and our view on it at Primer is like, Technology is an incredibly powerful tool. We do use it for a lot of things, but you cannot replace, or I guess I should say, it's best not to replace the in-person teacher relationship, which is why every micro school is led by a teacher and an aide, and they love the kids, and they know the kids, and they build a relationship with the kids, and it is an in-person you know, community experience um, that uses technology to augment the experience for kids, that gives them virtual tutoring when they're behind or when they want to get ahead. Um, there's always things that we use technology for, but the core of the experience, like if you talk to a teacher, if you talk to a kid, they're going to say like, my teacher is Miss April. Like that is my teacher. Like I love Miss April. She knows me. She knows that, you know, my dog died last week and she sent me a note about it. And, you know, like they, they have that relationship. And I think that part of it is, especially for the elementary years, is like incredibly important. You cannot replace that with technology. But that being said, there's like incredibly powerful tools for learning that we use and a lot of other schools use. And we're building some in-house too that are, you know, amazing and they're going to change the game. Uh, but I just don't think it's a one-to-one replacement for teachers. So if I'm a teacher interested in, in trying something like primer, like what, what, what are you going to give me? Like, what is the, what am I using? You said you're building some really cool tools for them. What's some of the things you guys have built so far? So when you sign up for primer, you basically get all the regulatory stuff we talked about, which is, hey, we're going to handle creating the school for you. Uh, it's going to be spun up. You're going to basically not have to think about that at all. Um, and then you get our, our whole engine for family engagement, student engagement. Like we have all this in-house technology that we built that, that takes Basically, all the learning experiences that kids are happy, having across their in-person experiences with a teacher, um, virtual tutors that they might be working with, they might be using a learning app like Lexia or Admentum or Zern or Khan Academy or whatever, um, and it, it sort of automatically ingests everything that they're doing and then gives the teacher and the parents um, a view into that and understand how the students are progressing against their grade level benchmarks, against where we think they could be. We also show kids like, um, hey, if you just kept working like you're working now, this is where you'd be at the end of the year. If you wanted to work really hard, here's where you could be at the end of the year. Mm. And we show them that delta. And then we show like, hey, if you worked you know, an extra like 30 minutes a day, this is where you could be in math by the end of the year. Um, and it turns out that kind of stuff is really motivating for kids. And when you actually just sort of treat them like humans and say like, hey, look, you know, you can keep doing this and you're going to stay on grade level. But if you want to, you can actually work really, really hard. And this is where you could be. They get super motivated by that. And they end up working really hard and they love seeing their progress. And so there's a lot of things like that that are not rocket science, but just most schools are not doing. What are some stories from students or teachers, like anything that stands out that you want to share of some of the success that you guys have seen so far? Yeah, we, I mean, a lot of them are, they're like feel good, but they're also really sad. Like we had a, a student who came who her mom said, hey, like she needs a lot of support. She's on an IEP. She's on medications, all these different things. You know, she has this long list of things that her teachers have told me. And, you know, she came to Primer and 
a few weeks in, her micro school leader talked to our head of education and said, I, I think I'm pretty sure she just doesn't know how to read. And I'm pretty sure no one's ever taught her to read. And she's in fourth grade and she's just really frustrated because she can't read. And that'd be really frustrating for any fourth grader if you hadn't been taught to read. Man. And so we have these sort of like accelerator, uh, sort of remedial support tracks that will put kids in if they, they need additional support. And of course, like, if, you know, it doesn't take that long for a fourth grader to learn how to read. And so, you know, put, put in this sort of support track a few weeks later, all of a sudden, like, all these things start clicking for her. her mom's like, hey, what, what changed? Like, what's going on? What are you guys doing? This is amazing. Like, just helped her learn, like, in a way that was actually, like, personalized to her and made her feel supported. And for this family, it was like, changed the world. But for me, it was like, almost, it was extremely sad because I was like, this mom has been living in, like, extreme anxiety about her child. This child has been completely failed by the system. And the domino effect of that, if it hadn't changed, like, would be, could be catastrophic for that yeah. family or is catastrophic for that family. And so I just, I, like, this stuff really bothers me. And I think just as a parent, it bothers me, like as thinking about leading primer, it bothers me. Um, and then we have other kids that come from like really good public schools and they come into primer and they're in the first percentile in reading and math. They're two or three grade levels behind. And we had a kid who was in the first percentile in reading and math. We put him on this accelerated track. So he got personalized tutoring and, uh, you know, different, different resources. And he actually said, uh, he came to his micro school leader and we were talking about what the goals were for the year. And he said, I want to learn to read. I was in third grade. He's like, I want to learn to read. I'm sick of not knowing how to read. I'm sick of being made fun of. And we're like, well, you're not going to get made fun of here, but we can definitely teach you how to read. And so him and his parents and, and the microscope came up with a plan. And in like 12 weeks, he went from the first percentile to the 38th percentile in reading. In a few weeks. Yeah. In like this three months. And, the, and, and then over that period, he was in the 99th percentile for rate of growth uh, wow. in the United States. So he grew faster than 99% of students. Holy cow. And the crazy thing is that his math, we didn't do any remedial work for math. We just did reading. That's all we did. There's no, no, no additional support for math. His math scores jumped by almost the exact same amount. Because it turns out that he just couldn't read a lot of the math problems, but he was actually incredibly strong at math. Wow. And so once he could read a lot of the math problems in the instruction, which is normal in third grade math to have words that aren't explaining things, he then was like, everything started clicking. And it was all because of this like remedial reading track that he was on. And so, I mean, none of this stuff is rocket science, but I just think that the, this is the, goes, comes back to the bureaucracy and the sort of stiffness and, and like the traditional system just really struggles to serve these kids well. And so a lot of the challenge for us is like, can you figure out how to scale that to 100,000 to a million kids? You know, can you launch 5,000 micro schools a year that, that can deliver those kind of outcomes? And I think the only way to do that is through code and through technology. Um, and so that's what our team's working on. Yeah. So how old was that, that kid? Uh, he's a third grader. Because he was eight, eight or nine years old. Yeah. And he, I mean, there, there's no way that he could have done that by himself in the school system. I mean, yeah, he, he would have been lucky to have, you know, like some sort of remedial specialist that would have come in once a week or something and done one-on-one -on -one support. Um, and schools try to do this, but it's just very difficult in the budget structure and the way that headcount's allocated. Um, oftentimes, these kind of positions are actually funded by parents through the Parent Teacher Association. And so they'll actually like be donating money that will cover like one, you know, headcount inside the school for like a remedial reading specialist. It's not even covered by the district. It's like parents are funding this position, thank God. But then, you know, every kid just gets a little bit of that time. Um, and so you can't give them what they need. How did those kids discover Primer? Do you know? Was it related to some of these struggles that they were having? And No, it's all through the teachers. So okay. these teachers are the face of the school. They're the superheroes. We're like, hey, Miss, Miss April's launching a micro school in Miami. You should join Miss April's school. And so Miss April's talking to families that she knows and, and telling them, hey, I'm launching my own school. And so it's really, they're the stars. So how do you do that? I mean, I'm thinking a teacher, they're, they're very good at teaching, connecting with kids, and all of a sudden they have to start marketing. So it is different skill sets, but... Marketing is really like being able to communicate something in a way that connects with your audience and do it in a way that leaves them trusting you or being willing to take some next step that you want them to take. 
And teachers are actually really good at that because they're super good at interacting with parents. They're super good at interacting with kids and they're super good at building trust with families. And so we found that it, it takes some, you know, some push to say, hey, you know, here's how here's the language that you could use or here's like some assets you could use. But once you give them the ideas, like it starts clicking. And we have some micro school leaders now that are like really good at this. Like they are they are like incredible entrepreneurs. And so actually, if everyone asks these questions, like, well, how do you how do you take a teacher and like, you know, they, they're running their own school, like they're in charge of like, you know, managing all these things. And you're like, yeah, they're actually amazing. Like you just you're just underestimating teachers, which is like, fine, keep underestimating them. We're going to go, you know, empower them. You can keep underestimating them. But the vast majority of them, when you put them in an environment like this, like they thrive. And they're so excited. Um, and so they actually just need someone to empower them and say, hey, we think you're amazing. Like, here's all the tools you need. You go chase this vision and they crush it. Yeah, I think the thing I found too with parent or child related products or like parents talk to each other. So did you kind of unlock that a little bit in any ways or? Yeah, yeah. we think about it as like neighborhood growth. Like if one one year there's one micro school uh, in a neighborhood with 20 kids, the next year we want there to be three micro schools in that neighborhood with 60 kids across those micro schools. And so we track that very carefully and that's, happening in every neighborhood that we're in. And it's it's a combination of teachers, you know, driving the growth and the families driving the growth. Um, but just so many families are desperate for better schools that once mm-hmm. one family is saying, oh, we love this school that we're at uh, and it's really affordable, you could probably afford it. Um, that is that, that just spreads really quickly. Okay, so if affordable. Say I, I'm a parent, I'm, I'm excited about Primer, find a really good teacher in my neighborhood. Yep. And, you know, school's free. Like the public school is free. How do I I mean, I probably have to pay for primer in some capacity. How does that work? So we we work super hard to find every scholarship dollar available to every family. There are families that attend primer and pay out of pocket and they, they'll pay, uh, you know, tuition that's on par with like good private schools, not the top private schools. We're not competing with the $50,000 a year private schools, but they'll pay, you know, full tuition. And then we also have families that are extremely low income that can pay either zero or very little out of pocket. And we have to date never turned anyone away. Uh, for how much they could pay. And so we built uh, this sort of system that like essentially gets every family, every possible scholarship dollar they could get, whether it's from the state, um, whether it's from private foundations. And we also have the Primer Foundation, which is our own foundation that we go fundraise for that helps mm-hmm. cover some of these costs for low-income families. And the reality is that most of these programs are very difficult to navigate for families, but they're, they are out there. And so if you help families navigate them it's, and you sort of educate them on them, it's like it's, they are in, in a, you know, totally able to do it and, and access capital, but the programs are not super user-friendly. And then the goal for us is how can we make these schools be able to be self-sustaining even with you know very low out-of-pocket contributions from some families. Um, and that's sort of the holy grail, because if you can do that, you can compete head-to-head with the traditional system. Okay, so how do you get the teachers on board? Teachers are pumped about it. So yeah. we, we get tons of applications for every micro school that we like announce that we're you know, launching a new city. We also go out and proactively find teachers that we think are going to be a really good fit. But yeah, from a teaching perspective, like they get a huge raise over what they're, typically a big raise over what they're making now. Um, they get the opportunity to make a lot of income where their their income is um, incentivized sort of with the success of the school. Um, and so they have additional bonuses and raises and different things that happen based on that. Um, and then they also get like extreme amounts of freedom because most teachers are motivated by connecting with kids and driving academic outcomes. And we give them basically total freedom to do those two things and a bunch of technology that makes those two things easier. And what they, what they hear from their friends that tell them about is like, hey, there's a school you can go work at where you can start your own school. You have a ton of freedom, you make more money, and you get to make a huge impact on these students. Like that's sort of the t- every teacher's dream. So how can you afford to pay a teacher more? There's no bureaucracy in the system. It's a teacher and an aide in an existing real estate, uh, sort of underutilized real estate asset, which is still very nice, by the way. These the campuses are beautiful, they're gorgeous, um, but it's just we're not going out and building some you know new school. We're using something that already exists, and there's very little overhead for the school. I mean, it's it's the building, it's the insurance, rent, you know, utilities, cleaning. 
the micro school leaders uh, salary, the aid salary, uh, the virtual teachers and the curriculum for the kids. And that's it. There's not this huge cost base of principals and operations managers and all these things that exist in the traditional system. And so you take all that out and all of a sudden you have a lot more money to go to teachers. You kind of unbundle the because the sc- currently exactly. schools are just bundles of all these little classrooms and they operate independently, exactly. but they overrec. So you, would you miss out then on having music class or art class or gym class? Because there's no gym teacher, there's no art studio and music space. So some of that you can do virtually. So we have some of that, some of that happens virtually. We have some of that, that the micro school leader will lead. And so every micro school leader has their own. So we had one micro school leader this year that was very passionate about robotics. And so she led like a robotics uh, like cool. sort of intensive for her kids that were all really excited about robotics. A lot of the elective type stuff can happen in that environment, but certainly there are trade-offs. Like you're not, you're not in a, you know, a 1200 person high school with a football team. Um, and so there's, you know, things that some families will value and some students will value where micro schools are not a good fit. But we think for most families and a lot of families, the, the trade-offs of having this intimate environment where kids can move at their own pace, they feel supported, they have agency, um, is worth the trade-off of those things. And then in Florida and a lot of states, you can still participate in a lot of stuff after school. Um, at your local public school or at any private school. And so in Florida, for example, you can play sports at public school, regardless of whether or not you go there or not, for example. Um, and so there's there's actually a lot of choice uh, for, for after school and different types of activities for kids, uh, in sort of regardless of where you go to school. And is there like a primer curriculum that is being top-down distributed? Or if I'm a teacher or even a parent, do I have input on what gets taught? So parents have transparency into everything their kids are learning. Um, is there so- an app? Yeah, so that they see they see everything their kids are learning. They know, hey, my kid's using you know Khan Academy to learn more about three digits subtraction or whatever it might be. They obviously know who the teachers are. They have parent teacher conferences, all that stuff. We mostly tell the teachers, hey, this is the stack. Like this is what we developed. This is and some some combination of in house and existing stuff. Um, the teachers do have some flexibility within that, and so they can decide, hey, the class. I think like the class needs a lot of help with this specific thing, or they're really interested in this thing, and so we want to you know pivot and spend more time on this. They have the freedom to do that. And so the combination of things that we've developed in-house, existing things, and then the teachers, you know, sort of reading the room and understanding what students need and then calibrating on that. And so you probably take feedback from the teachers and are building new capabilities and products and making their job easier as they, as, as you go and as they go, right? The quality of the teacher sort of like sets the floor. And so, you know, if, if you take an absolute top 0.001% teacher and you put them in a room with 30 kids, like they're, they're going to crush it. Like that's going to be an unbelievable experience. You know, if you had one of the top hundred third grade teachers in the U.S., like it's just going to be amazing. It doesn't matter what technology exists. doesn't matter almost anything. It doesn't matter what room you're in. You could be in a warehouse somewhere. And those kids are probably going to have an amazing time because that teacher is just going to nail it. It's going to be, everything's going to be amazing. Technology, I think, is something that can actually raise the bar for every teacher, regardless of what their specific strengths and weaknesses are. And so some teachers are really good at sort of figuring out and intuitively knowing where each kid's at, where they're struggling. Some teachers are really good instructionally. Some teachers are really good emotionally connecting with kids. And so the, the way we think about technology is like, how do you help every teacher be sort of like top 1% at everything? They sort of get to do what they do best and they have technology that sort of shores up the things that they're weak in. So if a teacher isn't the best, you know, fifth grade math uh, teacher in the world, they have a virtual fifth grade math, you know, tutor that can work one-on-one with a student and help them learn something and do it in a way that's like extremely tailored to that ex- student's experience and not have the pressure to like nail out themselves when they might be really good at history or science or, you know, pursuits and that are these more immersive things that we work on. So hmm. it's sort of the idea is that technology sort of augments uh, and raises the bar for the teachers. I'm jumping back a little bit, but what was the moment that you came up with the idea to do all of this? Okay, so if we jump way back, my mom was a public school teacher and we moved from uh, Atlanta to Orlando and she took me to kindergarten orientation and she sort of like had a crisis where she's like, I can't leave you here. Because like most teachers, she had taught me, you know, math, reading stuff you know, before I was in kindergarten. And she was actually very anti-alternative education. So she 
wrote an essay on like against homeschooling and against alternative education. Um, she was very pro public schools, but she kind of had this crisis and we didn't have any money. So there's no like world where I was going to go to a private school. And so she decided to quit her job and like basically what, I mean, essentially what she started was a micro school. Like it wasn't called that at the time, but she got a group of other families together and she started homeschooling me um, and basically like helping sort of organize these groups of kids, this group of kids that are mostly in our neighborhood. And we I had this unbelievable education experience and she thought she would do this for like a year and she ended up doing it for 16 years, um, kindergarten through eighth grade for me and my two younger siblings. And it was incredible. It was like, I, in the moment, you know, you're like a, you know, snotty nosed, you know, fifth grader. Like, you, you, you have no idea. You're just like, oh, is. this is cool, whatever. Yeah. Um, but like, I look back on it and it's like, oh, we need to learn about the American Revolution. She like rented a van and drove us like up the coast from Florida to like all the 13 colonies to like learn, you know, to walk where Paul Revere read his, you know, rode the horse and make every, all these things like come to life for us. I remember we were learning about um, some, it was something about biology or organs or something. And she, uh, it was, I think it was anatomy and she went to a butcher and like convinced a butcher to like give her like lung, the lungs of a cow or something and like brought them home in a cooler. Uh, and we were it's this sort of bizarre, but amazing, you know, way to learn about this. And so I just thought that was school. Uh, and then I went to a traditional high school, college dropped out, moved to San Francisco. I met my wife at college. We got married and we started having kids and I was like, okay, well, I want them to have that. That's, that's the thing that I want. Like that was incredible. And I sort of knew this intuitively every year I learned how rare that was. Um, but I just assumed that like someone had cracked that nut. Like it's, you know, I knew it was a huge market. I knew we spent a ton of money on education. I thought there was this, like pretty interesting sort of decentralized distributed approach with micro schools. And I knew that homeschooling and homeschool co-ops were already a thing. And so this is sort of like a productized version of that. And there wasn't that big of a shift in terms of like consumer behavior and the, these things were sort of already working, but they were very organic. I basically realized it didn't exist. And so I was in the process of, uh, we were sort of selling the last company that I was working on and I still remember a very clear moment where I was like, okay, I'm going to do this. And this is like, hopefully my life's work. I think it's one of those problems that you sort of need to have kids to feel personally, like how big of a deal this is. Um, and and I w it was very clear to me that so many other people in the space, either they were building auxiliary things that were sort of like add-ons or extracurricular or whatever, or they were trying to, if they were building actual schools and trying to solve this, this sort of like fundamental problem, they were doing it and building like really high-end private schools. And so they were, they were competing with the $50,000 a year private school. And no one had really tried to, to create a model that could compete head-to-head -head and actually be accessible for like the average family making $55,000 a year living in the Midwest. And that was what was interesting to me because that was, you know, my family was not going to pay for $50,000 a year private school. It's never going to happen. And so once the, the pieces started coming together and micro schools, I felt like was this sort of structural shift that allowed that to, to, to happen or to be possible. That was when all the pieces kind of came together. So why don't you think anyone approached it the same way that you did? Like all the things we've just talked about for the last, I don't know how long we've been talking, but it sounds very complicated. And yeah. I would just say like, hey, let's work on a different problem. I actually briefly tried to get other people to start this company. Really? Uh, okay. I like, tried to convince other founders because I wanted it to exist for my kids. I was like, oh, someone should build this. And they were all like, that sounds terrible. Why would I ever do that? So it, it, it's, it's extremely hard. I mean, it's one of those startups that the, it's like what Elon talks about with like SpaceX famously is like, yeah, this will probably test the same thing. Like, this will probably fail. Like the odds are that this will fail. But if we're successful, we're going to change the course of civilization. And I feel, you know, it, we're in a very different sort of market and industry, but education is one of those problems that most people that, that attack it fail. But if you are one, if you are one of the companies that can actually figure out how to find some wedge or find some structural shift that makes some change possible, like that will change the course of the, those kids' lives. And so for me, I think the reason why so many people haven't done it is because the incumbent forces are, they're very good at protecting their interests. And 
they do that through funding, through legislation, through making it hard to compete. And the reality is that like that machine is real and you have to be ready for war if you're going to go into this market because they, they know what they're doing. They're not, you know, these, these, these are not amateurs. Like they're very, very good at this. They've done it for 60 plus years. They're going to continue doing it for a long time. And so it's one of those, those things that you have to go and clear eyed about. But I think also that, that, that also makes the opportunity so much more exciting because the challenge is not wondering if there's demand or wondering if you're going to be able to figure out, is this something actually people want? You know that it's something people want and people are voting with their feet and their dollars and their voices and you, you know, polls that you talked about. You just have the question of, can we execute? And that's what's exciting to me. Um, that's what our team, you know, wakes up every morning really excited about. Okay, so you, you had this idea. How did you go about doing this? Like, how did you make it start to happen and work? The first idea was, okay, we're going to build a online aggregation point. We call them clubs. where we're going to get all the most ambitious kids together uh, on the internet and have them work on projects together. Our like seed memo was like, we're gonna build this and then we're gonna like step two is this and it's like, we're gonna, once we get geographic density, we're gonna launch micro schools in those communities where we have geographic density and use sort of the, the internet native product to scale super fast. Um, and so we unfortunately slash fortunately launched Primer like 30 days before the COVID lockdowns. Mm. Um, and so we had this like massive surge of interest of all these people like, hey, can you like, you know, I need to teach my kid math. And I was, you know, like the company's like 26 days old or something at this point. And like, no, we can't teach your kid math. Like we're still trying to figure things out. And so we had this like huge surge of interest. And then we sort of like, everyone went back to school. And so there's a bunch of churn. And we sort of had this choice where we could continue working on the the sort of internet native version of Primer or we could go right for the sort of in-game. And I had breakfast with a prominent friend investor, not an investor in Primer, but I was sort of asking him for his, you know, his thoughts on this, you know, sort of dilemma that I was facing. And he said, look, you, you, I don't know anyone who's ever regretted uh, in, this, in this position going after like the absolute hardest problem as fast as possible and trying to solve whatever the fundamental, like deliver the fundamental solution to the market and say like, this is the whole thing. Um, and micro schools are the whole thing. It's like literally a one-for-one -one replacement of your kid's existing school that you don't like. It's not, you know, an after-school thing. It's not this online program. It's like you can you can go to this next year instead of the school that you hate. And that was a, a very critical moment for me in this decision to sort of go all in on micro schools and sort of accelerate that. And so Keith Boy has this great concept of barrels at companies. And so I knew that if we were going to do this, we would need to have a barrel uh, that could sort of own this like end to end and make it happen. What's a barrel? Barrels are people at companies that can take a project and go basically own it end to end. And so you can say, hey, we need to do this thing. And that's like the one conversation you need to have. And then they will go figure out what do I need to be successful? How do we define success? Like what, you know, what are all the inputs? Let me go make that happen. And so you can just trust them to get it done. And uh, I ended up meeting this guy, Ian, who was actually in on deck, who was working on a micro school company. Uh, in Miami, and he ended up sort of able to sort of very thankfully convince him to join Primer. Uh, and he was able to sort of spearhead getting these pilot schools off the ground. And we actually launched the pilot schools in 126 days from when we decided to like do it. 126 days later, we had five pilot schools live in Miami with students and teachers like ready to go, which was insane. How did you convince him? He's a longtime educator. So he's like launched some schools, been in the charter school world for a long time. And I think he would probably say that the education side of it was like very clear to him, but the sort of regulatory capital like company side um, was this whole other beast. And by doing it as part of Primer and sort of joining us to help get these off the ground, he was able to de-risk a lot of that and then focus on the actual like operations and education side of the micro schools. And I think that was a trade-off that he was really excited to make. How do you approach that hiring somebody super talented? They could probably start their own company. A bunch of our team members actually are former founders. And I think... 
the the common thread I think is that you have to be in it. You have to have a company that is a, has a sufficiently large vision that they they have sort of like BATNA, like the best alternative to negotiated agreement. Like if you're a former founder, like you have all these ideas that you could go build and like you could you know you could go start a company and you could probably start a bootstrap company if you wanted. You could go raise money if you wanted. Um, you need to have a vision that is like sufficiently compelling that it's better than anything that they have thought about doing themselves and that they're excited about you know doing that instead of all these other things. And then I think you need to have a culture where they can come in and operate like a founder. And so Primer's culture is extremely autonomous. It's very rare that I will tell them how something needs to be done. Like it's it almost always, hey, this is the goal, this is what we're trying to do. Um, and I totally trust them to go figure it out. How do you trust someone? Hire really good people. Okay, fair. And I think that honestly, like the only way to make that type of culture work is if you have great talent, because otherwise you're going to have to be involved in every single detail and like you have to be prescriptive about how things get done not just you know what the output is um and if you do that you just get super bogged down so hmm. our team is super small we're only 12 people today at hq and so we have to have a very talented team and so i think across the board our team is just exceptionally talented and a lot of them are former founders or people that have been on the founding teams of great companies it's almost like that also flows down to the teachers because they are yeah. part of the company yeah i mean how do you hire really good teachers uh that's a great question for ian we sort of screen for three things. The first is instructional ability. Are they like a great instructional teacher? So we look at references, we look at classroom videos, we have them do like, you know, lessons that they teach to sort of screen for their instructional ability. That's sort of like table six. The second is how, how do they relationally connect with kids where, you know, every, every kid has this, has a teacher that's like, that teacher changed my life. Like that was, that teacher was like my favorite person. They were my hero, whatever. When I was in second grade, like every primary teacher should be that thing, that, that person for those kids. Like that's, that's how they should look back on it 20 years from now. And that's our bar. And then the third piece is, are they entrepreneurs? And we talked about this earlier. Like, are they able to run their own business, their own sort of like organization? And, you know, can they, when the printer breaks, like, are they going to figure out how to fix it? Like all these things that like, you know, at a traditional school, like you'd have someone to do that. And all of a sudden you're just, it's you and the aide running the school. Like you got to figure it out. And so those are the three things that we screen for. Um, and then we weigh really heavily references from families, from, from colleagues. Um, and, you know, it turns out that like families or family references are like, gold for this um, because families are really honest about their teacher experiences. Yeah, that's fair. Okay, so you have Ian joins, you launched, I forgot how many schools you said, but you launched the, the first schools in Miami, first five schools. W what time is this? May 2022. May, okay, so like about a year ago, a little over a year ago. Yep. How did it go? That Those 126 days were maybe the most hundred, most intense of my career, but I mean, it went great. We had first day of school, family showed up, teachers showed up. And this was uh, August, end of August? August, yeah, yeah, okay. yeah, beginning of, uh, middle of August. And there was a lot of things that we didn't know, and there's a lot of things that we messed up. Um, what did you mess up? I think we under we underestimated the distribution of the actual grade levels, meaning like we're not their age, but actually like the sort of current abilities of the kids that were coming in and how wide the, those would be for kids that most of their education happened during COVID. You know, you can read all the New York Times headlines, whatever, and you can think it's fake. That is just, that is real. Like that really? learning loss is real. What, what were the headlines? Like what? I mean, there's all these stories about you know, like they're like, oh, this you know, either like. It did, it did impact kids a lot or didn't impact kids a lot or whatever. It did. Um, and these kids are behind. And so I don't think we sort of were as clear eyed about that reality going into it. And I think we would have done a lot of things differently. And we would, so we didn't figure out this whole, like this remedial accelerated kind of structure until later on in the year. And we definitely would have prioritized having that ready, like on day one, if we'd known that, because that turns out that's really effective, but you have to have that structure and the infrastructure in place and the staffing and everything to make it happen. But we got the schools live and parents, turns out like are very excited and love it. Almost every parent and family is coming back next year. A hundred percent of teachers are coming back next year. Wow. Um, okay. So uh, every, every single campus has net negative revenue churn. 
Um, so they're between siblings and, and parent referrals. Like there's more students, even without any of our marketing efforts, like more students attending every single campus than last year. Okay. So this, so this is leading up to basically right now, like yep. the school year, did it end yet or is it still going? Uh, depends on the campus, but I think next week is, is the last day of school for most of them. Wow. Okay. So what happens in the summer now at Primer? It's weird because we have these, depending on the team, it's like either like your time to exhale or like your time to like, it's like <laughs> all nighters and working every weekend. It's sort of the, 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 the operation education side. This is like the time to take an exhale. And then the admissions and growth side, it's like September or October is the time to take the exhale because after the school year starts and then yeah. right before you ramp up for next year. So it's kind of these staggered times, but yeah, the team's excited. So what are you guys doing on the admissions and the growth side? Like like right now specifically, are there certain tests you're running or like what's the best channels, what's working or what, what, do you guys, what are you doing? The biggest thing we're leading you to is just micro school leader driven recruitment. Like how do you make them the stars of the show? How do you give them all the tools and resources they need to be able to go effectively recruit students? We're also trying to figure out what the optimal, every school does the same thing, which is like you come to a tour and then and you've probably done this. And then you come to like a, you know, if it's a private school, you do like a family interview type thing where you like go meet the administrators and you're like, they, they're kind of like screening you and you're screening them and whatever. Yep. Sort of this awkward like thing. Your kid is there. He, the kid is kind of playing exactly. with the toys. You're like observing like the blocks, like, oh, he didn't stack the blocks. Yeah. Like, oh, I'm not going to get into this school. <laughs> this is a bizarre, bizarre thing. So we, we tried to figure out, okay, if you re- rethought all that from first principles, like how, would, what the actual optimal way and it's it, this balance between you want to give parents, you want to get parents enough information that they feel like they have the information they need to make a decision. But I think the reality is most parents like actually want like less time spent on like the dog and pony show and they more just want to like get the info they need very efficiently, make a call, and then they want to be able to opt in to more information that they want. So the way we do it is we, we sort of have a, a very, very lightweight process and then sort of at midpoint of that process, the family can choose like, hey, do you want to come on a tour? Or do you want to come meet your teacher? Do you want to do all these things? And you can do all those things. Or if you're like, no, I know I want to enroll and I'm going on summer vacation and I don't want to like do all that stuff. You can just like enroll and then we'll see you, you know, when you show up for the first day of school. And so there's a lot of things we're trying to figure out from that side, like what basically, it's a, it's a funnel basically. So what's the most efficient funnel for, for and how do you apply all the things that we know that are best practices from running tech companies for thinking about funnels? to a school admissions process. Yeah, so I mean, what's what's working the best there? Can you talk about that? So everything related to the micro school leaders is working the best. I mean, mm-hmm. so putting like them, them talking to families, um, them being at tours, you know, talking about the school, them doing events, like all that stuff is, is out, outperforms everything else that our team could do um, as far as like running Facebook ads or things like that. The other thing that works really well is like now that we have one year under our belt, uh, being able to show like, hey, here's this very specific student outcomes last year. Almost every school, very, very few schools sort of show any specific, obviously it's anonymized, but like specific student outcome data, usually like, oh, we're a blue ribbon school or we're a gold ribbon school. And it's like, okay, what does that exactly mean? Like, yep. it's sort of this big aggregate idea. And so we're able to say like, hey, this kid, you know, here's, here's an anonymous, anonymous sort of story of a kid that came in at this level, went through this specific track that your kid could also go to if they needed it. And then, I, you know, six months later, they were at this level. Um, and that's very compelling for families because it feels like there's an engine here that like my kid can, can, benefit from and can be opted into or I can opt them into. And, and this is specifically how it works. And it's not this sort of just like vague idea. So it sounds like you have a little bit of a, you know, what would the tech community like to call a flywheel? There's a little yeah. like things are really starting to work compounding. How did you get the first couple of teachers on board? Because you're just like, hey, it's like we're doing this new school. Like it's probably sounds a little bit insane. Like, yeah, what? Ian led all that on our team. Some of them were people that we knew already. Uh, the team had relationships with. But honestly, they, t- I mean, they took a flyer on us. Like they, mm-hmm. I will never forget for, I told them this actually, uh, we had an all hands with them oh, cool. two days ago. In person? Uh, cool. It was virtual. And I told them, I said, I will, you know, all of you take a bet, took a bet this year on Primer and I will never, ever forget that they all have equity in the company. Wow. Um, okay. Like they are, I mean, they, they joined when it was nothing, when they had no, I mean, they just 
believed us that we were actually going to launch these schools. They went and recruited kids. They, it was like the ultimate, you know, vote of trust. And, you know, hopefully that pays off for them. But yeah, I will never forget the, the ones that took a bet on us last year. And I don't take that lightly. Okay, so you had the all hands. Anything that really stands out to you? Any numbers about the how education works that are really surprising to you that other people might find interesting? We talked about this a little bit earlier, but I think the blend of where spend is going. In general, uh, the trend is that we spend a lot of money on education on a per kid basis. Like the average public school spends basically twice what we need to spend at Primer to educate kids. And there's so much of this that just goes to the sort of the, the bureaucracy layer. And a lot of this, I think, comes down to a lack of trust in teachers and the, 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 all these management layers that have been put in place. There was some essay that I saw that was a, a person writing out their experience working in a school in the 70s and like the org chart and then their experience working in a school. I think that maybe their daughter works in a school or son works in a school now. Um, and they were just comparing the difference. I'll try to send it to you and you can put it in the show notes. Yeah, but, we'll, we'll share it. Um, they, they were talking about the, experience, the difference in experience between... Uh, basically in whatever, 53 years or whatever, 50 years, the difference in the org chart of just running a, you know, whatever, 600 kid elementary school, 900 kid elementary school. And it was basically like, you know, a principal, like, this is a reductionist, you know, sort of narrative, but it was like a principal and some teachers was like basically like the school and a janitor and a few other people. And now like the, you know, the, the school is like, you know, this, the principal and then like these, you know, however many assistant principals and then these other management layers and then teachers and then all these support staff. It was just like, you know, all the, and, and all these things are like, maybe not the, the, the sort of management layers, but support staff and these things are nominally there for improving student outcomes and supporting students. But, but there's just a lot of money going to things that are not this teacher, you know, teaching these kids math. Maybe one of the things that's interesting to talk about is the difference between the signal versus the actual outcomes. And so like San Francisco uh, school district is like, I think the most famous example of this where the school district has historically been obsessed with the signal that they put out about the things that they care about. And so they, you know, put out all sorts of signals that they care about, you know, minority students and minority students feeling, feeling a certain way in schools or, you know, that, that they want to prioritize minority students. And so they make all these changes and they make this huge, you know, sort of big grand public, you know, PR statement. And then three years later, it turns out all the minority students are doing worse in all the subjects after all the things that they change. And so you look at the math data and it's just like very wow. clear. And no one talks about it. No one mentions it. It's like, you know, no one, no one makes a big deal out of it. But they, they sort of created this signal publicly that they were going to make all these radical changes in the name of this initiative. Uh, and then it, it actually had the exact opposite outcome of what they wanted. Um, but they still have this brand of like, you know, prioritizing these things. Has anyone diagnosed and figured out why that happened? I haven't looked into the specifics of that, like one about what, what exactly it was that they changed. But I think that's a, that is a symptom of the problem where it's like these, the, a lot of these institutions, they care a lot about the signals that they put out, but they're not actually obsessed with the outcome data. Mm. Um, and so they, you know, it's much easier. And the reality is it's just much easier to create a signal, much easier to create a narrative that like, hey, we care about this or hey, we at our school, we prioritize this. Then actually, it's actually really, really hard to create good student outcomes. Like that's one of the things people don't realize about education. It's very difficult. There's a lot of reasons why the spend is going where it is, but I think um, a lot of it you can trace back to some of these, you know, broader secular trends around the sort of managerial class and like the sort of the bloat of that, that level of organizations. And I don't think schools are any exception. The thing that's always blown my mind about the San Francisco school system, system is I have kids. We both have kids. So we, we have kids that go to school. I mean, a little bit of an extreme example, but you might live right next to a school. San Francisco has a system where it's kind of like a lottery, right? Yep. And you can basically go a anywhere and you don't get to pick. Yep. Right. So you might live right next to an elementary school. Yep. Great school, but, you know, just makes sense to send your kid next door, yep. drop them off. You, your kid might actually have to go to a school that's 30 minutes away. Yeah. And this is a perfect example of that policy was enacted 
to increase the equity of school districts or schools so that the um, you know, people that lived in lower income neighborhoods weren't going to schools that were you know, in these lower income neighborhoods primarily, and they were also able to go to schools across the city and then vice versa. So you wouldn't have any bad schools. You would have you know, sort of kids from all the city would constantly go to all these other schools. On the surface, you know, sort of take the geography out of it. And this sounds awesome. But no one talked to parents about like, hey, do you, are you okay carpooling like, you know, or driving your kid, you know, for two and a half hours being in the car every day for your kid to go to school? Like 90% of parents would be like, no, like definitely not going to do that. And so, of course, like private school enrollment in San Francisco skyrocketed, people leaving San Francisco skyrocketed. And I think it's, this is a like crystal perfect example of like a well-meaning policy that, you know, on the surface looks good. But when you actually, the implementation of it actually has the exact opposite effect, which is that a lot of the students just leave San Francisco and the, the enrollment in SFUSD has gone down like four years in a row. So is this a San Francisco specific or unique situation or is there other other examples or other other things going on like broadly across the country? I think it's, I mean, San Francisco is, you know, one that makes a lot of headlines, but I think it's emblematic of a lot of school systems across the country and the dysfunction and they've just become very political and not in a left or right way, but just they are, they are political entities in that it's, a, you know, many, like in San Francisco, for example, it's a stepping stone to higher office. So you run for school board and then you run for board of supervisors. And so there's just a lot of politics that have gotten in, in sort of, the, the, and, and these people are actually like, they make very critical decisions for the school district and they vote on very important things. And, and there's, you know, a very real sense in which those things should not be political. That should function more like a board of directors versus yeah. like an elected, you know, sort of mini legislative branch of the school district. Yeah. And then when you think about who or what's the downstream implications is the kids that are, yeah, that are in this every day. A anything else that you've kind of seen? At some point, we'll share stories publicly, but I think, I think there are a lot of really good sc public schools in the U.S. And I've been to a lot of these schools and so I, I'm not, I don't want to make a blatant statement about every public school, but the worst public schools in the U.S. are an order of magnitude worse than people think they are. I mean, mm -hmm. the stories that we hear from parents about what their kids experience, it is like just gut-wrenching stuff. And so I think that that's a very uncomfortable truth that we sort of push it to the fringes and just say, oh, well, if, you, if you're talking about that, you're trying to create some anti-public school narrative or whatever. And the reality is if you really care about public schools and you want to fix public schools, the fastest path to doing that would be being real about the, that reality, talking about the data, making the data transparent, and then figuring out, okay, what are all the inputs that have led to this? And how do we change all those inputs to make sure this doesn't happen again? A lot of these schools, it's just a very sad situation. Yeah, it's not like that's really unique to the education system. I mean, that's a anything in life. It's, you gotta, you gotta look, face look it. At, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I, I also wanted to say, uh, my daughter goes to a public school. We love it. It's yeah. great. Yeah, that's that's awesome. We're huge fans. So it, it, do, it does work in, in a lot of, in a lot of cases, it works pretty well. Yeah. What other problems do you think out there that if you weren't doing primer, what else would you try to take on? So an idea I briefly explored before primer that I don't know if I've ever talked about publicly, but I had a friend that one of his sort of business partners, his other business was like government contracting and sort of winning these government contracts. And he basically had just figured out a way to like game the system and like make, you know, whatever, a couple million bucks a year, basically arbitraging things by like, you know, buying them and then immediately reselling to the government for like, you know, significant markups. And he would just tell me these, all these stories about, you know, the procurement departments of various government entities and how they were, you know, double paying for software and all these things. And so an idea I briefly explored, which um, I decided not to do, which might, might be one of the things that would be harder than uh, education, was um, building software to try to fix government procurement. Because like one of the macro things that I'm very worried about is basically debt to GDP and how, because of our, our the, the structure of our government, it is going to always be a problem that no one wants to tackle. Because the only way to tackle it is by making very uncomfortable decisions that are going to be very unpopular with voters and everyone, yeah. no one wants to get voted out. But, but we always talk about it in, in terms of 
okay, well, the only way to, to cut, uh, you know, government spending would be to cut these programs or which might need to happen. I'm not saying it doesn't need to happen. But the reality is the government wastes insane amounts of money. Like, mm. I don't, I, I could never get a real number, but it's certainly billions of dollars, I think, that you could remove from the system uh, if you were able to deploy some sort of system, some sort of software layer that would be able to predict, uh, you know, where double spend was happening, um, be able to help figure out how to cut costs. All these all sort of, it, it, some of it would be process reform and some of it would be actual software layer. And so I think if you could sort of do what like Anduril is doing uh, for defense, but do it for like government procurement and contracting, I think that's a huge opportunity that if you if you were sufficiently motivated about this sort of government spending problem, attacking it by making the government much more efficient, I think would, would be just really interesting. It would take you a long time to infiltrate the system enough that you could actually get whatever solution you figured out for, to, you know, reform procurement to like actually exist everywhere. And it would be probably very unpopular. But if you could do it, I'm convinced that you could save absurd amounts of money. And then you, and the pitch would be like, hey, bipartisan, you should have bipartisan support for this because we can go pay for all those things that you all want to do. And we can pay without raising taxes uh, because we, we taxes. You know, yeah, yeah, hypothetically. But I think it, one of the things I think is would take someone, you know, totally insane to go actually try to build that. People benefit from the government overspending, right? Exactly. This is the problem. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's it's in some ways it's a, you know, sort of social program by taking taxpayer dollars and getting them back into the economy through, you know, these things. So it's, there's both sides. I know there's been, there's like almost like, it's like a meme every time it really resurfaces how much money the, the Pentagon doesn't know yeah. is what it's actually being spent exactly. on. It's like half of the budget. They yeah. just don't even know where it goes. They've never passed, the Pentagon's never passed an audit. Um, I think is the is the crazy stat. They've never, they've never successfully been able to say like, here's the paper on everything. And it's not like minor things that they don't know where they are. It's like, you a know, billion dollars. Yeah, it's like they, very important parts for like, you know, airplanes that cost like insane amounts of money that they just like don't know where they are. Yeah, that definitely sounds like a problem. A- anything else? I, I, all, all the other ideas that I have are not really like venture scale things. Like I think there's a lot of things you could do to fix local politics. I think there's this huge societal problem, which is that everyone cares like, I don't know, an order of magnitude, two orders of magnitude, maybe more about federal politics than they do about like local politics when actually local politics imp- impacts your life. Probably the same extent to which the, the, the opposite. it's inverted. It's probably yeah. like the same extent that it impacts your life. But like almost no one knows, even in San Francisco where there's like, it's very contentious. Um, I mean, like there, we did some recent polling and it was like 70% of people don't even know who their like local supervisor is, much less like have an opinion on them or, you know, voting for them or whatever. Probably one of the people in your life that has the highest amount of power over your quality of life for the next four years, certainly more than the president. And we basically just like everyone in every city just like has no idea. And I think if you could, I think there's, there are things that you could do that would connect the work of local governments more to the day-to-day experience of citizens. And you'd, you'd sort of make that, make the way the system works legible to citizens in a way that would make them more excited to engage in elections and advocacy and different things. And I think that that, that would be a very positive force, uh, certainly in the United States, uh, to have more people engaged in local government. Yeah. I mean, it, it really ties into, a little bit ties into what you're doing yeah. with Primer. Not not directly, maybe indirectly. I, I guess we, we can kind of end, like, what what does the future look like for Primer? I mean, uh, how do you think about the next couple of years, five years, 10 years? The, the goal is basically to build an engine that you can launch thousands of micro schools a year. You can use technology to take any top 1% teacher and help them launch uh, launch their own schools. And so that's what the team's focused on. That's what we're focused on. Um, and do it in a way that's accessible to every family. So not something that just is accessible to people that can afford to spend $40,000 private school, but really just the average American family can have a great education option in their neighborhood. And yeah, it's really interesting when you think about when you kind of mentioned outcomes, uh, you know, maybe a little bit of a disconnect. But when you really think about it, like if you're the the federal government just as like an entity, like the, the country, 
these students and these kids are going to grow up and they're going to contribute to society. And when we talk about tax revenue, it's like, do you want to optimize the tax revenue of the, the kids that are coming through? Like you want these kids to be very successful. Yeah. They, they benefit the country as a whole. Like when I think about my own fulfillment, like I was talking to my wife a couple of weeks ago, I was like, I think like the moment that I'm, that, that will, will be successful to me is like, if I'm 60 years old and I'm like, you know, reflecting back on primer, if I can think back on all these kids that, that primer was a small part of their journey and they went on to, to find their own fulfillment or make a huge impact on the world. And so the idea that, I mean, I would be just excited about a kid that grew up to start, uh, you know, some awesome small business as I would be someone that, you know, went on to become president. But the idea that, that primer is sort of like this index fund, not in a financial sense, but um, in a sort of outcome for humanity sense, like primer is up, education in general is upstream of solving all these problems that we have, whether it's like political science problem, whatever they are. The idea that, that, that we're sort of like this engine that can help push more kids into taking on these ambitious challenges. Um, I think that's the thing that, you know, when I'm six years old, hopefully I can look back on and, and feel a lot of fulfillment on. Yeah, it's pretty exciting. Thanks, man. Yeah, this is really cool. Thanks for tuning into the PL. Quick reminder that nothing discussed in this episode was investment advice and you should do your own research before investing in any company's mentioned. If you want to support the show, the best ways are to leave a review wherever you listen to podcasts, like, comment, subscribe if you're on YouTube, and share this with one friend who might like it. This all helps with visibility and getting more guests and takes less than two minutes. If you don't want to miss an episode, subscribe to the newsletter in the show notes, and you'll get new ones in your inbox the moment they drop. Thanks again for tuning in, and see you next time.